Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I want to talk about coaching. I recently connected with an awesome executive and life coach, and her name is Jenna Chieko. A graduate of Dr. Martha Beck's program with a background in psychology and law, she's a former tech general counsel and chief of staff who also worked for the Obama administration. Jenna inspires clients to step into their best lives by helping them access their inner strengths, clear the cobwebs holding them back, and cultivate a dream big growth mindset. She is also a life Sherpa for navigating change. You know who I know who has big dreams and is navigating massive changes now more than ever with coronavirus? We Spoonies. Jenna works virtually, and she's offering 10% off to new clients who enroll and mention code INVISIBLE. Her rates are reasonable, and she's dedicated to help us rise to the top. Go to jennachieco.com, that's G-E-N-A-C-H-I-E-C-O.com for more. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here with someone you may recognize. You may remember her from the Today Show, Good Morning America. She's made plenty of television and radio appearances. She's also the founder of Her Viewpoint and an OBGYN based in Dallas, Texas. Guys, it's Dr. Jessica Shepard. Dr. Shepard, thanks for joining us. Yay! I feel like I should be like maybe adding like a, a little applause, you know, and then I know. The I feel like we need applause. <laughs> We this made it awesome. <laughs> I know. I know. You can even tell them. <laughs> it's it's such a pleasure to chat with you. So we yeah. met at Blog Her LA a few months ago, and I walked up to you and you knew who I was, which did me over. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, please be on my show. Um, so you looked around and you said, she knows who I am. I go, yeah. yes, I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe it because obviously I knew who you were. So um, it's such a thrill to have you on the show. And I know that our guests have been wanting to have a bunch of questions answered also from an expert. And we're also talking during Endometriosis Awareness Week. So it's I know. all very apt. I'm yeah. very excited. Yes. Yeah. And you've also been posting some wonderful regular content about safety during COVID-19, yes. which has been super helpful and super accessible for everyone. Thank you Thank for you. watching those. I feel oh my like gosh. it's an opportunity to make it simple. Yeah. but make it reputable uh, information, one that That's people can actually take home a message and not, there's a lot going on right now as far as what's true, what's not, what's conspiracy, mm-hmm. what's like evidence-based. And so it's just taking that and simplifying it. Absolutely. And with a doctor that we can trust as well, which is great. So Yay. it's just a total thrill to have you on. So let's start from the beginning. Can you let's tell do us about your area of specialty and about your practice? 
Yeah. So, you know, trained OBGYN, that's what I did my four years in residency. But it was during those four years that I was like, I think I really like being in the OR. And that's where I kind of found my love for surgery. And then I did an, a two-year fellowship. So I did two more years after my residency in minimally invasive surgery, mm. which allowed allows us to do kind of more complex surgery in the gynecological space. And it was during those two years of that fellowship that I did in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, that I, I think I really found out what endometriosis was. So even though I'd done my four years, I really felt that that two years really opened my eyes to really see the disease for what it is, yeah. both surgically, but also now I consulted all these women in my office um, to a much greater number and level that I had seen in residency. And that's where I started to make the connection. So I would see it and speak to it because these women had such different experiences and then see it in the OR. So it kind of like merged that and really kind of started a foundation of me understanding the disease, but learning how to treat it, um, mm. both um, medically, surgically, and emotionally too. Yeah. Especially as a woman who can relate yeah. to what's going on. And, um, what about, I mean, we know that you come across endometriosis in your practice. What other invisible conditions do you come across frequently and, and how are you diagnosing and treating these conditions? Yeah. You know, that's a great way to put it as like the invisible. Um, yeah. Well, because women's health issues kind of, they're invisible, exactly. right? Exactly. That's what I was going to say is that anything below the belt, I like to call it below the belt is mm. either it falls into a category, you know, for women where they feel shame or guilt. Um, and then from maybe a healthcare perspective is it's hard to understand because now it's what information or how to get that information that will help us treat one, we may not be asking the right questions, but two is this awkward conversation because women don't necessarily want to talk about it. They uh, suffer in silence and for us to get extract that information so we can make better decisions is hard. So it's a hard conversation. Mm, absolutely. So, yeah. So the pelvic pain, basically, to answer your question is kind of that invisible mm. um, condition that I deal with a lot in my office, because it's not always endometriosis. It can be to a lot of other things as well. What other kinds of things are we talking about here? If someone doesn't have endometriosis and they're having pelvic pain, what else can they be living with? Oh, yeah. So it can run the gamut from anywhere from, you know, an ovarian mass that they have. It can be from mm. fibroids. It can mm. be from a fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia can wow. have, you know, can have some pelvic issues. And wow. then also dyspareunia from things like vaginismus or um, vulvar issues. And so there's a lot of different things, whether it, whatever organ it affects, if it, you know, affects the external part, you know, the vaginal area, mm-hmm. or internally, just from the organs itself, from the uterus, the ovaries, fallopian tubes, even the cervix. So there's a lot of issues that affect the nerves that are in the pelvis, and those are much harder to, one, diagnose, but treat. And that's where I get into, and we might get into it in this conversation, is how I really access a multidisciplinary approach mm-hmm. to, you know, the pelvic pain disorders. Can you tell us about that? I'd love to hear about that. Is that sort of a more integrative approach, would you say? Absolutely. So, you know, when I was in Chicago before I moved to Dallas um, two years ago, I had a really robust team of pelvic physical therapists. Shout out to all the pelvic physical therapists. I think they're They're wonderful. They're amazing. Yes. And also like colorectal. Mm. and also your gynecologist and utilizing those services and expertise to narrow down and focus and treat 
and manage. And I say treat lightly because I never promise my patients, I'm going to hundred percent take away your pain. Mm. You know, I think the goal collectively between a doctor and a physician, especially when you're dealing, dealing with pelvic pain is to improve quality of life because yeah. that's going to be a different parameter for everyone. And we're really trying to improve their quality of life and figuring out where it has impacted their life and how mm. do we kind of move to an area where that's improved. Yeah, absolutely. And as you're saying, it's sounding like there's no one way to treat all of these things because you're right. dealing with nerves, you're dealing with actual structures in the body. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. external, sometimes it's internal. And so yeah. it's a real case by case kind of situation, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. What about hypochondria in your practice? Do you yeah. ever have patients come in and you think like, this is a hypochondriac or, or is it really that like we need to believe women's pain? Um, I think that there are a small percentage of patients who are hypochondriacs. Mm. I would say they're very few and far between, but I actually have a lot of patients that know they are. So we Mm. laugh about it. So they're like, I know I'm coming in again for the fifth time this month (laughs) and this time I have, and I'm like, tell me, tell me what it is this time. So we we have like a a, a good conversation about it, but they know they are and they know Mm. that I know they are. But as far as um, pelvic pain, I wouldn't say hypochondriac um, because I think if most people are concerned about a pelvic pain disorder, uh, they'll ask the questions. And as we sift through them, if we're able to get to a point where they're like, Oh, okay. I was kind of reading into that and they can kind of walk away reassuring or feeling reassured that, okay, I am fine. And then you have the ones who are like, listen, I've been saying this for years and years and years and no one's really been listening to me. Those are the stories that I probably am more familiar with. Um, Because when you look at specifically endometriosis, I would say that the average length or duration before diagnosis can run anywhere from six to 10 years. Yeah, that's what we hear. That's where, yeah. And so frustration is built up because they have been repeating the story for so Mm -hmm. long. Um, And again, I think it's to both sides as pain is very subjective. And pain is actually very difficult to describe. Mm. And so, you know, from a patient perspective, we have to teach patients how to express what Mm. their pain is. Yeah. Um, Because you've only really been taught, oh, my belly hurts, right? Right. No one ever says, well, how does it hurt? How does it feel? Is it sharp, stabbing, dull, achy? When you grow up, you're like, my foot hurts, my Mm. belly hurts. So no one really teaches us as we, you know, go through life how to qualify mm-hmm. and quantify pain. We just and describe pain. it. Yeah. 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 We're just like, I have pain. And we're like, oh, okay. Take time yeah. and all. Yeah. So it, it, it doesn't, that's not this, you know, any different from pelvic pain, but when we're really trying to sift through what that pain is attributed to, mm. that's where we have to teach. Okay. This is how we describe pain. This is how pain um, can feel, but there's also pain that is normal and abnormal. Right. And that's, that's a harder conversation to have. Um, Particularly humans, with regard to women's health. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. It's hard to kind of get into that cycle of this is pain and that's okay. Mm. Or this is pain and this is not okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really well-made point. So we were talking about endometriosis. Do you consider endometriosis given these long periods of time that people have to wait for diagnosis and treatment. Do you consider it to be a public health crisis? We hear a lot of advocates in the space saying that it is, and I'd love to get your take on that. When you look at a public health crisis or situation, when you look at the actual definition of public health, it's something that affects uh, people and then the environments that it affects outside of those people. So if you were to classify it, you know, you could technically say it's a public health issue. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if I 
all the way agree with that. Not in a bad way. Um, what I do feel is it's a underrepresented yeah. issue. Yeah. Underrepresented to me is probably more um, defining of how I feel about it. Public mm-hmm. health. Yeah. If you wanted to technically say the definition of public health is this, and this is why it could fall into those parameters. I think that there's an argument for that as well. Um, but mm-hmm. for me, it's mo- mostly an underrepresented uh, issue. And do you think it's underrepresented because it takes people so long to get these diagnoses that like there are doctors who just aren't believing people when they're saying that something's wrong? I think that's multifactorial. And Mm. um, so when, when I hear, uh, you know, endometriosis sufferers and a lot of, a lot of it does go to, Oh, the doctor's not listening to me. And then Mm. from my side, I'm like, well, you know, those are my colleagues. So I'm not saying that they're all bad. I do think that we could probably do better training um, Mm. as far as what endometriosis is. But I think for so long, it's such a complex disease and not as much, not much is known about it. And then as far as what we had to, how to help, we were limited. So this limited toolbox with this complex issue that we didn't know about, so it's not necessarily to make an excuse, but I do feel that when we look at endometriosis, um, one, I do think society has an issue with voicing issues that have to do with the female yeah. and specifically pelvic. Because anytime I have a woman who expresses to me what her issues are, it seems as if it's they're almost shamed of saying what their issues, literally because it has to be a pelvic issue. Because if we took endometriosis and all of a sudden it was a, an arm pain issue, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> really, people wouldn't have an, an issue with going to their doctor and being like, yeah, my, my arm really hurts. It hurts during yeah. my period. Um, I don't know. It's really weird. No one would mm. really connect it. Cause there's always like this sexual connotation that comes yeah. with any pelvic issue, even though it has nothing to do necessarily with sex, with sex itself. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I do think that society plays an issue with that and also emotionally yeah. as well. It's a very emotional uh, disease and mm. that combined with society saying, oh, you know, I think we're brought up as, as females to be like, we don't talk about anything below the no. belt. No, no, so we then, don't. So then there's all of that that plays into it as well, as well as when you finally have the kind of balls to, to talk about it to your doctor, then we go through this cycle of not being heard. Yeah. So I think collectively it's this big ugly, uh, black cloud of Mm. all these things together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, at the referral stage, there probably needs to be more education too, right? Mm -hmm. Because like a lot of people are going to a general practitioner who might send them home with Tylenol or going to the ER who might send them home with Tylenol, you know, and sometimes it's about asking for that referral. If you don't know to ask for it to say, I need to see a specialist. You know, and I think it actually could be as easy as kind of like, if you think of social media world, like a hashtag, like mm. uh, pelvic pain, like we should be taught, you know, maybe in, in med school, more hashtags. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just be like, okay, pelvic pain, really bad period could be endo, send them to make sure yeah. either endo specialist or gynecologist with mm. the notion that make sure you tell your gynecologist when you're in the ER Hey, that ER doc said to mention to you endometriosis. Mm. Like that one little snippet of information could alert a gynecologist. Because here's the thing, a referral when they come to us, and that, this is why I want to give this background to it, is why from a physician standpoint, it's, it's giving you kind of like the, the background story. When we get referrals and we hear stories, a lot of times there's information missing um, or we don't know the full medical history or how many people they've seen. So we're literally dealing with it from the first time we're hearing it. And so of course we're going to go back to 
the management plan of what everyone else has done as well. Cause we didn't know there's no continuity with this plan. Mm, and so yeah. that's why it gets frustrating. Cause we're like, but this is the first time you're telling me the story. And if I were to go back to my medical background, yeah, we could start with this, which typically would be maybe a birth control pill say. Right. But we didn't know, Oh, you've seen six other doctors who now you failed all these therapies. So there's such a, a story behind it that we were not always privy to. So we're like, of course, this is what I would start with. And so it's that repetitive pattern of knocking your head against, you know, Mm -hmm. concrete because you're like, no, I've been to 10 doctors. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just a a very difficult conversation that I think we have ways to make it a little bit easier. And I think we have made progress. We just Mm -hmm. need to do a little bit more work. So yes, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. That like there needs to be a little bit more structure in terms of diagnosis and treatment and, you know, treatment protocols and things like that would probably save us a lot of time. And the awareness of endometriosis. One, there's no um, endometriosis awareness month and week. Mm -hmm. And then for example, like you see more of it on TV now. Like it's yeah. not this aloof uh, diagnosis. People are like, what? What is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, more people are speaking up about it. Absolutely. You know what I like to compare it to? And obviously we'd need a few more years for it to be like this, like breast cancer. Mm. I mean, 20 years ago, breast cancer. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. And now everything is, I mean, NFL, they yeah. wear pink stuff. <laughs> yeah. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's just about that growing awareness. Same thing with things mm-hmm. like fibromyalgia too, which yes. people used to say didn't even exist. And yeah. 20 years later, it's a diagnosis, you know, right. so absolutely true. It's just about developing. It's about us sort of catching up with the human body in a sense, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's sort of pivot here and talk a little bit about fibroids because that's yeah. a condition that you mentioned as well. Um, we've talked about them a little bit on the show before, um, particularly with regard to treatment um, because of studies that have been done about um, power morselators in particular. And I, yeah. I was wondering if you could talk to us about fibroid removal and mm-hmm. this use of power morselators and what your yeah. take is on all that. So power morselators, um, I would say that I used them all the time, as well as many gynecologists. And so power morselators are the tool in what we used in minimally invasive surgery to remove the fibroid or the specimen from the abdomen slash pelvis to take it out of the body. Mm. And that's how you could maintain a minimally invasive um, approach because it you use a small incision. Yeah, it's a little piece. It's kind of yeah. like a, a chopper and cuts it up into pieces. So back in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember this because I was on maternity leave. This is when the FDA came out with uh, their black box warning. And mm-hmm. so I think that there's a lot of information that's out there, which I'm glad you asked is how to sift through information. Yeah. Um, so the black, the black box warning did not say you cannot use it. Mm-hmm. What it said is that because of what happened in that particular instance um, with that physician in Boston who had an undiagnosed uh, cancer, and a morselator was used in a minimally invasive hysterectomy, which then spread the cancer. Yeah. Um, and so that's where it became kind of like that, what we call a sentinel event mm. uh, that we had to stop and take a look at and then make up different recommendations there thereafter. Mm. So after that, it wasn't to say that we couldn't use morselators. It was, we need to take a step and look at what happened. Do we need to change our approach? And, um, from that, we, we do know that fibroids are benign. They're benign tumors. Um, there is a possibility that sometimes with hysterectomy, say, if there's an undiagnosed cancer that's there, that it could spread. 
So what we took from that, you know, in the medical community was the issue wasn't the tool. The issue was that there was undiagnosed cancer. Right. So there needed to be tissue samples before the tool was used. Right. And I think what, you know, what the community took it as is that the power morselator was the problem. Hmm. But what we do know in, in surgery is that there are various ways to remove specimen from the body. Hmm. And so even if someone had that particular cancer in that case was very aggressive, it's a very aggressive cancer. And it's very hard to diagnose prior to a surgery, almost impossible. Yeah. And so even if that person who had that undiagnosed cancer had it removed through open um, incision surgery, yeah. or even that it has, it's so aggressive. It still has the potential to spread once you mm. make an incision in the, the uterus to remove it. Wow. So it was that particular type of cancer, but it still allowed us to take a step back, which I appreciate. We, we need that in medicine. Mm. Um, and that's how we get better in medicine is to evaluate things and, and move forward in a better light. So yeah. how we've now changed that is still using more salation, but not the tool. So we still morselate, but we use like say a knife mm. and remove the tissue and it's in a bag. Right. So it's much more contained. Right. So it's, yeah. it's contained. There is no spread of any cells or tissue because it's mm. one, it's contained and two, we're not using the tool to remove it anymore. We just manually remove it. So it sounds like it probably takes a little longer, but it's the safer way to do it, huh? Safer way to do it. So what, you know, so my colleagues and I who um, did fellowships and are, are in minimally invasive trained, we have now over the years, because we're like, let's stop, take a look, change the course. This is what I love about medicine and science is that we said, okay, let's find a new way to take it out where we're not mm-hmm. exposing patients to cancer, put it in a bag and learned how to do it manually with the knife. And now we've created a way where we can do it in the same amount of time. That's a, that's amazing. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Wow. Yeah. So it's great to hear that now what you're able to do is really save people the headache that they might've had with power morselators. And yeah, yeah, because I think if we had taken it for what it is and just be like, Oh my God, power morselators are bad. What would have happened if you look at the epidemiology of it, then everyone would started doing open. Mm, and that's and so what, really invasive. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so wow. that's how we kind of saved and maintain the integrity of minimally invasive surgery by changing our technique. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you also touched on earlier, you know, the emotional side of mm-hmm. pelvic health issues. And I'm wondering how you are, are, are addressing the patient's feeling that they're often like shuttled between specialists. They've seen, you know, 10, a dozen doctors, maybe mm-hmm. they require better bedside manner or empathy. Do yeah. you take special care in your bedside manner because of the nature and the privacy of women's health issues too? Yeah, I think, you know, over the the last 10 years of my career, I've really focused more on the wellness aspect of women's health. Mm. And that's encompassing the emotional aspect, the social aspect, the sexual aspect Mm. of these pelvic disorders. And how do we integrate that? So as we transition through this management slash treatment of whatever disease it is, whether it's endo, whether it's fibroids, pelvic pain, is that they understand that there's an emotional aspect to it and I'm very open to it. So I don't necessarily try to be the therapist, but I have a sex therapist and a relationship therapist that I send my patients to Wonderful. all the time. Because if you think about it, say endometriosis, again, it has to do with below the belt, mm-hmm. shame and guilt. And so it does socially affect people's relationships. Yeah. And whether they have pain with sex or 
they just don't have sex because they're just like, I just don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Now, what if we get to a place in their management and therapy where that's not an issue anymore, but yeah. emotionally, mentally, they've been traumatized. Sure. And so re-entering that space in their life requires someone to transition them that way. And that's where sex therapy comes into uh, effect because they need to get back to a normal sex life or sexual intimacy or sexual relationship and wellness. Which can be nourishing in its own way too. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really Who doesn't love sex? I know. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) I'm glad we have an OBGYN who's (laughs) pro-sex. Pro-sex all the way. I love it. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible Pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, enter code INVISIBLE30, that's INVISIBLE30 at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. Let's get into our healthcare system a little bit. You've touched on it here and there, but I'm wondering in what ways you're seeing our current healthcare system here in the U.S. working for patients and in what ways you can see that it needs improvement and you could maybe imagine improvement in certain areas. Yeah, I think we're in the perfect uh, era to see how it's not working for us, um, i.e. COVID. Uh, yeah. <laughs> literally, <laughs> we have the best uh, healthcare in the world, quote, I put that in quotes right now during this yep. time. But we have been shown that possibly we don't, literally because of insurance and capitalism. Mm, Uh, Because we've had other countries who have had the same kind of issue, an epidemic, and and they have dealt with it much better. So Mm. the healthcare, as far as looking out for the community, meaning the population, um, and other countries have have shown us to, uh, to be very shameful right now. Yeah. And um, it allows access to some and not to others. Mm. And that's where I kind of have an issue with uh, how we deal with healthcare in America and insurance companies and how we've allowed that to be something that is really good because we have good resources. Mm. We have amazing resources. We have amazing um, healthcare providers from so yes. many different specialties that other countries do not have. But sometimes to access and to tap into the resources, there is a lot of red tape or barriers and cost. Yeah. And so, you know, it's kind of like that seesaw where sometimes we're rocking it out. Mm. We're able to to give really exceptional care and access to things countries have never even seen before or been able to have access to. But sometimes we have shown ourselves our, our side where we're not necessarily giving people who really need that care, um, the care that they need. And that's, as a physician, that's hard to watch because Mm. my job is just to give care. So I don't care how you got to your doctor's visit or how, you know, for for lack of a better term, my job is to, when you get here, I don't care what religion you are, are, what gender, what color, what faith. My job is to take care of you in your health. And it becomes very hard for us as healthcare providers to watch the system work against us and against our patients. 
Mm. Um, and you know, that takes away from time, you know, the time that maybe I have to spend on the phone because a same insurance carrier can deny one patient, uh, surgery yeah. and treatment and not another. And that, I, that is just the weirdest thing to me. And I yeah. don't understand that. Yeah, absolutely. What about ways we could improve the system? Are there ways that you could imagine fixing it sort of off the bat, you know? Off the bat, I think that if we found ways to, for example, cash pay. Mm. Um, When people think of cash pay, they always think it's going to be some exorbitant amount of money Mm -hmm. uh, that's due. But when you actually look at the amount, when people have like commercial carriers, say, insurance, how how much they pay towards their deductible, and then how much they might pay towards a copay when they go to the office or towards a surgery. If you really gave them the option to say, okay, if you didn't have insurance and here, if you paid this amount, you could get this type of care. I think if you put it out that simple, people would be like, oh, well, depending on where I am in life or how healthy I am or whatever the issue is, whatever the surgery is that I couldn't get with insurance and I just had to pay that to get it, I think it would actually be eye-opening. And I think that if people saw, were allowed those options to see, they might choose differently. Um, But many times we're not given that option and that's where it becomes a little bit cumbersome. I'm glad you bring it up too, because I think one way to circumvent that third party insurance system, sometimes if you're trying to see a specialist who you're unable to get in to see because of your Mm -hmm. insurance company, you Mm -hmm. can often call offices and say, what's your cash rate? Um, Because a lot of doctors will take cash and it may be less than you think. Yeah. And that's what we offer at our office as well. And many times because you're paying cash, we have the ability to be like to take off a certain percentage because Mm -hmm. you're paying cash. Um, And so we are able to provide that for some patients. Not a lot of patients know that they can um, do that. Very true. Yeah. And sometimes, like you said, your insurance could dictate sometimes who you're allowed to see. Yes. And you're like, but no, I want to see that provider. Mm. And um, again, that's kind of like that red tape. And mm. if you were able to circumvent that and call that office and say, hey, I want to see you, what would that cost? Um, I think people would be pleasantly surprised yes. to see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great tip, actually. So, tip number one. <laughs> tip number one, yes, indeed. We'll get there. We're, we're getting there. So, I know a lot of the work that you do is about health in general, maintaining Mm -hmm. our body's health, right? You know, exercising, eating well, et cetera. I'm wondering how disciplined patients need to be when it comes to treatment and lifestyle. Does a diagnosis of say endo or fibroids mean that people who are living with these conditions need to upend their lives entirely, or is it about finding balance? I think balance, and I say that loosely because balance is different for everybody, um, that scale is different for everybody. Yeah. But what I have seen a lot of, um, particularly in the fibroid uh, patients, is they'll come to me and say, hey, I have fibroids, and we'll go through a whole consult and say, I, I'm really of the, the kind where I will offer you any and everything, and you figure out what's best for you. Now, if you come up with an option, I'm like, no, standing on your head is not going to <laughs> eliminate your fibroids. <laughs> It'll do something, but yeah, yeah. it won't help your fibroids. <laughs> and even after that entire consult, they'll say, well, I have heard that this diet can eliminate it. And I said, I have no problems with you doing a diet. However, I want you mm-hmm. to look at that diet and see if it has longevity. Like, could I, could I have you come back in my office in 10 years and you'd still be on that same diet? Right. And many times those diets are very restrictive. Yeah, they're um, not sustainable. And yeah, they're not sustainable. And, mm-hmm. you know, I want my patients to be healthy in the aspect that they're doing things that are sustainable, um, but also 
worth doing, you know, and something that is enjoyable, um, but is also healthy. And I think you can, you can obtain that, but it can't be something so restrictive in order to accomplish something. Cause as soon as you get off that diet for whatever uh, intent purpose that you did it, it would come back. And I really have, I'm very evidence-based for it. And if someone did a study, you know, like the double blinded, mm. randomized controlled study on a certain diet, and they showed me definitive decrease in fibroid size, I would say, absolutely, let's do it. Let's go yeah. on. But I really haven't seen that. And so my goal is to, how can I decrease inflammation inside your body? Mm. And that is something that you can obtain through certain diets that are not restrictive. And you can live your best life. You can really live a more fruitful life by, yes, affecting your diet, but not in a way where you're miserable. Yeah. Because when I look at them, I'm like, I would be miserable on that. Yeah. You would hate me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd be very moody. It would yes. not help the situation. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really good advice. And it's also, even when it comes to exercise, you know, a, this idea of sustainability, like you don't have to be running 16 miles a day. You just have to be yeah. moving your body in a way that feels yes. good, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's what I try to promote, you know, in my brand um, is that it doesn't have to be this, you know, there are a lot of influencers, for example, who are fitness. And I even mm-hmm. fall into this where I look at them. I'm like, man, if I could just do that. And I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, I have a job. But I, can't, <laughs> I can't spend two hours in the gym. It'll be yeah. lovely, but I can't do that. So I try and take from that what I think would be new to try or exciting to try and just like form some type of routine in what is I can do within my time at work and or being a mom and a wife and being like, okay, I'm going to devote 45 minutes to my workout. And in my workout, I'm going to try and take these little tidbits in there. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really nice advice. It's great to hear a doctor being pro balance. (laughs) Yeah. Cause I don't have two hours. Yeah. (laughs) Well, cause you know, cause it's your life is busy too. I love that. (laughs) So here's a really great basic question for people who are tuning in. How often and at what age should women begin getting regularly checked for pap smears and things like that. What, what tests are you recommending this. regularly and, and how often and at what age? So I just, you know, I love um, giving a shout out to you, Lauren. I really think that you are doing a wonderful job at empowering women um, in their oh, health. Oh my God, Dr. Shepard. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, I really, I'm really impressed with um, how much you care. And that you stay true to your brand. Like Mm -hmm. you were like, this is what I'm doing. This is my cause. And this is what I want women to know. So I really applaud you for that. But now for women to get their annual checkups, here's where, what I say is I say that women should be very in tune with their body. And one of the best ways to do that is start early. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my patients who are in their thirties, forties, fifties, I really encourage them to start bringing in their daughters Mm. um as early as 15 not for an annual or pap smear but to literally sit and to just chill and be like hey who are you you know what grade are you in what are you interested Mm. in get to that yes so that when they have an issue Mm. they know that they can come somewhere and confide in me and then we do a quick yeah because i want it to be as if they have a resource yeah. And if a lot of what happens um, in young women's lives is because they didn't know who to go talk to. Mm-hmm. Totally. And if they know that it's confidential and that there's someone there on their side, mm. then they're more likely to, to come back and talk to me. And I always reassure their, their mothers, yeah, when you bring them, I can't tell you what we're talking about, but I just know in confidence that 
this is all to build and empower them. So I'm, I'm helping, I'm trying to yeah. help you. That's really um, awesome. That's above yeah. and beyond what a lot of doctors are willing to do. So that's I, really I find like if we can start them young, then mm-hmm. then why not? Giving a quick anatomy lesson so they're comfortable with their body parts and saying them and saying the terms and knowing what they are. Yeah. And then going into 21. So 21 is the age at which the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, ACOG, this is when we start pap smears. Mm-hmm. And just, I love asking women when they come in for a pap smears if they know what it's for. Many do not. So <laughs> pap smear literally is a screening test. It is not diagnostic. It just does not say if you have something or not. What it does is takes cells to allow us to see if they're abnormal or normal and if you've had HPV exposure or not. And from mm-hmm. those two things, we can decide, does this need, does this warrant looking at more in depth or can we put you on the track of recommendations, which would be every three years from the age of 21 to 29 and then starting at the age of 30, mm-hmm. every, um, every three years with the HPV test. We want you to ask for that HPV yeah, testing. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And sexual health testing. Yes. Probably absolutely. Be, be regular with that te- as well. Yes. Huh? So that and that can that actually can start earlier than 21. Yeah. So that's why I start those those visits early because if, you know, we start to have young women who become sexually active and they may have been exposed, I want them to know they have somewhere to go where they can get STD testing because that yeah. can actually be done through urine and blood. Mm-hmm. So we don't always necessarily need to use a speculum. Um, and that's what I let them know too, at that visit is even though that might sound intimidating, I don't always have to use that. I can do STD testing and contraceptive counseling without using a speculum. That's awesome. That's really, really awesome. I love that you're creating a relationship with these younger patients in particular, because that's That's what our healthcare should be, right? A relationship. Yeah. Yeah. It really should be. It's a partnership. And I think that gets missed in a lot of practices. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's really exciting to know that you're one of those doctors, although I knew you were already. So So is there anything you'd like patients to know about gynecological care resources that they can go to, how to request appointments, what to know about their doctors, how to know if their doctor's right for them? You know, do, do we need to you know, get a, a bikini wax before we come see you. <laughs> She's shaking so her head. Guys. Get, she doesn't uh, care. <laughs> I am going to share the link with you. It's hilarious, but, um, she knows, which is mm. blog her, uh, Reshma, who is, she's probably the director of marketing or her video. We did an interview on wine and gyne. Oh, I love that. Yes. That's right. I knew about that. And I, that was another reason she I was like, I love me, Dr. Shepard. <laughs> she asked me that same question about, do we need to relax? Do we? I go, by the time I leave the room, I will not remember what your vagina looked like. <laughs> the amount of vaginas I see a day, yeah. I literally cannot remember one from the next. Yeah. And when I walk out the room, I'm like, wait, if someone quizzed me on it, I'd be like, I don't know. I don't, don't even know. know what it looked like. Yeah. So no, you don't need to uh, wax or shave or yeah, no. It's okay. Mm. You don't need to get a pedicure before coming. Yeah. Please just come. Just come, come as you are. Like maybe have yes. a shower. Yeah. Showers are good. Showers are always good. <laughs> Even wipes. Wipes yeah. are good. You know, wipes are good. Right yep. before you come in. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I really, I think relationship to me is the most important. That's really what I, I think about seven years ago. I was like, I'm going to make a commitment to make sure that however I can is establish that relationship mm. so that women feel when they come in, it doesn't need to be necessarily an hour long visit but we can vibe and we can get things done efficiently and effectively and they can walk out empowered. They can walk out and touch someone else's life because they're like, Oh my gosh, this is really good information. I learned you should know this. Yeah. That's really, and awesome. if people don't like me, 
that not everyone's going to like me. Yeah. That's okay. I, I'm always like, if you feel we didn't click or vibe, I'm really okay with it. Cause I don't want you when you come to feel as if we're not getting the most out of our visit. So I will even refer them to like some of my colleagues or friends and be like, go test them out, yeah. go see who you like. Cause this is your health and you should be impacted by the information that you get, but you're also in charge. This is you. This is all you. Yeah. I love that. Such good advice. So we're going to get into a little more advice here. Okay. Um, And we're on the tips. I wanted to know what your top three tips are for someone who maybe like, maybe like something's a little funky. Maybe they've got an invisible condition like endometriosis or fibroids Mm -hmm. um, and they're coming to you for help. What would your top three tips be for these patients? Yeah, I would say first thing is to do either a backlog or start a journal going forward. Mm -hmm. Because what's really helpful for, especially when you're thinking of like an invisible um, diagnosis or or condition, Mm -hmm. a lot of it requires a history and a history of how long, um, how intense, what things make it worse, what make things make it better. So many times when you go to the doctor's office, you're not going to remember a month previous what happened or even two months So it's very helpful when you can at least show a timeline and at times what happened, what didn't happen. So I can put pieces together a little bit better Mm. um, and make the appointment much more fruitful Mm. than me spending time extracting a lot of information, um, which we could have both looked at uh, together if if people bring it to me. Yeah. The other thing that I would say is either bring a notebook to take notes or bring someone with you if you're uncomfortable with whatever situation you're going through, or if you know you're not a good historian, or if you know you're not good at retaining information, bring someone with you who you, is like a good opponent or a strength, has a strength that you're like, that person's going to remember everything that yeah. was said. Um, to kind bring of make an advocate sure, with you. Really. Yes. <laughs> bringing an advocate and someone who you know is not yeah. going to be biased. Yeah. Someone who could be objective. Um, and kind of help you through the process as well. And then three, I would say is, again, going back to that relationship, especially with endometriosis, we know that there's that wall of frustration because most people have repeated their story over and over again, is to be open to the process. Um, One of the things that I've found is when patients are referred to me or they find me um, through the internet and they come to me with their fibroids or endometriosis or any condition, is that many times they have a wall up. And, and I understand why the wall is there. But the first few visits I do spend trying to figure out who they are, why that wall is there, so we can break that wall down so we can get somewhere. Mm. And that's the psychological, emotional part of these conditions that many times as medical professionals, you know, and, and this is, you know, maybe not our strongest point is we're there to treat. So we're usually like, all right, let's get to the problem. Let's get, let's fix this problem. Because right. <laughs> that's how often, we're trained. Well, and you're often on time constraints too, if you're yeah. dealing with insurance companies. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about how we were trained, we're like disease, treat, disease, treat, which is not, not a bad thing, but sometimes it's not the best because we're yeah. so focused on disease and treat. Um, and that's our strength. That's our strength as we do really well. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes, you know, we have to take a step back and, and, incorporate that emotional, psychological. And if we need to send someone to counseling and then have them come back, it's almost like massaging it out, yeah. massaging out a tight muscle and then coming back when you're not as stressed. Yeah. And I yeah. find once we can, everyone can decompress, then we can move forward and get positive feedback and positive outcomes. 
by us both being on the same path. Mm-hmm. So it's not to say that I expect everyone to walk in and not have a wall up. I know why they're there. Mm-hmm. My job is to figure out how can I bring this wall down so I can, you know, we can both move forward together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Was there anything else you'd like to share with everyone tuning into this episode today? Certainly tell them where they can find you. Yes. And I'm going to make sure that you um, give this favor back because of my podcast, which is Breathe and Bloom podcast. Um, And we are on Instagram, we're on YouTube and also Spotify. And I'll share those with you so you can Mm. share with your listeners. But that really is kind of like the offshoot of like my medical profession. Mm. It really is to um, inspire and motivate people in their wellness again, because I think health is not just, I have a medical diagnosis or I have something wrong with me and I get it fixed. That, you know, that's, yeah, that's medicine. That's what we do. But health is really, how do we take that full circle of emotional, spiritual, sexual, physical, and make that who we are. Mm. And so multidimensional, it's, it's, it's not easy to, um, pay attention to all of them at one time, but at least being aware of it. Yeah. And that's what makes us this robust person that we can be. And that's Mm -hmm. what I love to tune into. And I, and I love to, for others to see that. And that's why I bring guests on so that they can share their stories or their tips and what they've learned and all these Mm -hmm. different aspects of health in their life and wellness. And someone could literally just hear someone's podcast or their episode and say, you know what, I'm going to try that in my life and see if that is helpful to me. So that's, that's really kind of who I am and and what my, what keeps me going. I love wellness and I love Mm. what we can accomplish if we're open to the process. Yeah. That's, I think that's a perfect place to end. Dr. Shepard, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. I'm, I mean, I've been fangirling since I met you. So (laughs) we know, we know I I, I adore you. I admire you. you. Yes. I really admire you. I I admire you. Oh my God. (laughs) You can't say things like this to me. You're going to make me blush. But I'm just so thrilled to have had you on the show. And uh, I'm really excited for everyone to tune in and, and hear your perspective. And I think it's great to get this medical perspective, you know, from someone who's on the front lines um, now and uh, dealing with patients like us every day. I I, I really appreciate you taking the time to give us your your thoughts. Absolutely. Thank you for taking this time to be with me in this hour. And I'm very humbled and I can't wait to hear the final segment. I know. And hey, stay safe out there, kids. Thank you. (laughs) Stay home, stay healthy. Yeah, stay home. Thank you so much, Dr. Shepard. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.